Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're new to North Cross, we're glad you're here, and we hope you feel welcomed. Um, if you're physically here, uh, there is a welcome table out in the lobby um, foyer area, and you're welcome to... Uh, sign up if you'd like to get more information. Uh, there are, there's also a free gift for you as well. And if you're new via uh, YouTube, uh, we're glad you're joining us, and we'd love to know that you're there. And so if you could just reach out. Mark gave you a couple email addresses earlier, info at northcrosschurch.com. My email address, sit at northcrosschurch.com. We'd love to know uh, that you're worshiping with us. And then uh, if you're not new and you're here again, Welcome, and we're glad you're here too, and uh, we're thankful to be with you to, to worship weekly together. Well, um, once again, um, I feel like I'm on an every other week pattern here, uh, so thanks for the people that covered for me last Sunday. Uh, instead of a vacation, as I said earlier, this time I got COVID 2019 and 2022 of May, and so um, here we are. And special thanks to Roger for covering and the sermon portion, and Mark picked up a healthy dose of stuff as well as Damon and all the volunteers that stepped in to do your parts to make church happen, and I'm thankful for that. Um, and I'm going to pick up, though, where I left off a few weeks ago in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and really our sermon series kind of tells us how we've been approaching this book of the Bible and we're calling it Jesus and his church belonging to an ordinary-looking miracle. Jesus and his church belonging to an ordinary-looking miracle. And really, this week's passage is building on that greater vision of Jesus and his church. God has centered his glorious resurrection power in this ordinary-looking miracle called the church. But Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, is answering an obvious objection. He's kind of continuing to answer that was it a little bit last two weeks ago. He's saying, he's answering the objection that we all have when we read passages like this, or we think about the church and that magnificent claim. But wait, how, can, how come Christians don't look and act all that different sometimes? How come? Or, and really the question becomes, what would it look like for people like us to try to be different? And where do we even begin to do that kind of change? These questions are ringing in our ears, and it's just time to take those to the Lord in prayer. So would you pray with me for our time and God's words to us this morning? Let's pray. Father, uh, these are challenging words, um, and I pray that you'd help us to hear them well. 
It's been a convicting passage to meditate, not on one week, but two weeks for me. <laughs> and uh, I think there's a reason for that. And I pray that you would be with all of our hearts as we encounter these words. And would you meet us by your spirit? And would you help these words come alive in our lives? Would you help us to see where we need you, Jesus, for forgiveness and where we need you for empowerment and where we need you for comfort and challenge? And Lord, would you be all those things and more to us and meet us wherever we are when we meet in this building and when we study your scriptures? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson was an intellectual giant. Born in 1704, he lived until 1794. That's almost a century that Johnson dominated the 18th century Brit-lit scene. That's what he was doing. The Oxford National uh, Dictionary of National Biography describes Samuel Johnson as, quote, arguably the most distinguished man of letters in English history. He's a big deal. Just to give you a sample of this man's like, intelligence and work ethic, Johnson single-handedly wrote a dictionary of the entire English language in the course of eight years with 40,000 word entries and 115,000 quotations of everyday historical usage. The French equivalent of that dictionary took not eight but 55 years and not one man, but 40 scholars. All this is not to mention just, if you Google Samuel Johnson, the many, many witty one-liners that come up in Google. Here's an example. There's literally hundreds. Almost every man wastes part of his life attempting to display qualities which he does not possess. Isn't that your story? That's my story. Every, almost every man wastes part of his life attempting to display qualities which he does not possess. That's just so good. <laughs> so true. I've been among one of many. In addition to being a brilliant and accomplished writer and thinker, Johnson was a devout Christian, and we actually prayed one of his prayers in our confession earlier in this service. And so when a witty companion of his named Boswell, when Boswell asked Samuel Johnson, what is the point of sharing a meal when nobody says anything that's remarkable, interesting, or memorable, why did I even go to that dinner, in other words? Johnson replies to this bit of snobbery, and he says it famously saying, the point of sharing a meal with anybody is to eat and drink together and to promote kindness. The point of sharing a meal with anybody is to eat and drink together and to promote kindness. I'm going to circle back to this idea of kindness, but before we do, I don't want us to get the wrong idea about Samuel Johnson. Sometimes we can do this with famous Christians' past, can't we? We can kind of elevate them to impossible heights. And so I'm thankful for how Johnson paints a fuller picture of himself and his faith in his diary and prayer journal. There, Samuel Johnson gives us a record of his efforts to be a Christian, to do a private Christian habit to get up in the morning and pray over the course of many, many, many years. So let me give you a little account, just some excerpt from that prayer journal. 1738, Johnson writes, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. 19 years later, 1757, that's two years after he completed that dictionary of the English language, by the way, Johnson writes this, O mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. Two years later, 1759, Johnson writes this, this prayer, Enable me to shake off idleness and sloth. 1761, 
I have resolved until I'm afraid to resolve again. Three years later, 1764, my indolence since my last reception of the sacrament has sunk into grosser sluggishness. My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness and to rise early. 1764, five months later, Johnson resolves to rise early, not later than six if I can. Several months later, 1765, I purpose to rise at eight, not six, because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, and for I often lie until two, that's 2 p.m. 2 p.m. for those counting. 1769, I am not yet in a state to form many resolutions. Shocking. I surprise, I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning at eight and by degrees to six. 1775, when I look back, resolutions of improvement and amendments, which I have made year after year, have been broken, have made it been broken. Why do I yet try and resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. And then he resolves again to rise at eight. Finally, 1791, 43 years after his first recorded desire to rise early in the morning and pray, three years before his death, Samuel Johnson writes, I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. And then he resolves to rise at eight or sooner and to avoid idleness. This account of Samuel Johnson's prayer life is both incredibly confusing, but also very, very comforting, isn't it? Johnson wrote 29 major, not total, works of literature, including a 40,000 entry, 115,000 quotation-based English dictionary by himself. And yet, and yet, he struggled to get up in the morning to pray. Clearly, it wasn't for lack of effort, because Johnson had an incredible work ethic. And yes, some are tempted to dismiss Johnson's struggle as a lack of faith. I think that's unfair. Or we might be tempted to explain Johnson's troubles as proof that he was just, quote, not a morning person. Instead, our passage this morning suggests Johnson's failures had something to do with how hard it is to actually change. Right? How difficult it is for all of us to motivate ourselves to do good spiritual things day in and day out. You see, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is writing to us about doing good because he knows we are not naturals at doing good. We are not naturals at saying and thinking and feeling and doing the kind thing. Or in Samuel Johnson's words, we struggle to promote kindness in public, but especially in private. And when, but when we embrace this struggle, the struggle, when we embrace that we're learners and not experts or masters at the Christian life, we can actually hear Paul tell us something wonderful. How being kind is something that we can long for, something that we can live for, and something that we can actually even enjoy. But when that happens, we see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Paul is telling us what the Christian life is about. It's about kindness, verse 32, and how to be kind. How to be kind in our words, how to be kind in our feelings, how to be kind in our actions. And so we're going to slow down and apply what God's word is teaching us here in five Yes, five points. Buckle up, buttercups. Here we come. Okay, here we go. First, verse 25. Four words, Paul reminds us, the footing or basis of, for the Christian life. Second, 
verses 25 and 29 through 30, Paul tells us how and why a Christian speaks. Third, verses 26 through 27, Paul tells us why and how a Christian feels. Fourth, verse 28, Paul tells us why and how a Christian acts. Fifth, and finally, verses 31 and 32, Paul reminds us of the rundown or summary of the Christian life. This outlines in your e-bolts and is projected behind me. So we're going to start with verse 25 and how Paul brings us back to the basics of the Christian life in four words or less. That's where we're going. Let's look at that first word that Paul uses to reinforce our footing in a sometimes slippery world. Paul's word of reminder is also the very first word of our passage. Therefore. Therefore. It's a small word. It's a word that can feel pretty formal, right? But Paul uses it to remind us about what he's about to say in our passage this morning is connected to what he has said before to the passage written before verse 25 and all the way back to the very beginning of this letter of Ephesians. It's meant to be one piece together, right? And it can almost, you can almost read him saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore. On the biggest level, Paul's therefore reminds us of whatever we do as a church of Jesus Christ, whatever we do individually or together, Whatever we do is always just entering into what God has already done. Yes, we have a part to play, but God writes the whole play from start to finish. And this truth gives us both the safety that we can't screw up God's play, and at the same time, the excitement that so much more is going on than the lines that we get to deliver. On a smaller picture level, Paul's therefore reminds us that specific practices that we're about to study come out of a context, verses 17 through 24, these general principles there. And by way of recap, again, I wish this had been the week after, but we're doing it two weeks, so I'm going to give you a little bit of recap. Two Sundays ago, we learned the biggest changes, good or bad changes, the biggest changes begin with our hearts or our natures, right? And then they move into our minds, And only finally do they settle into the actions of our hands and feet. And then the two great engines for these changes are what God does, that is the Holy Spirit quietly and powerfully renewing us from the inside out, and the second engine, what we do. We remember and live out of who we are now in Christ, our truest new self, and not our old, former, dissatisfied self. And these fundamentals of change are behind what Paul's saying when he says, having put away in the beginning of verse 25. And as Paul moves into these daily examples of what Christian life looks like, he does not want us to forget what he's already taught us. Because verses 25 through 32 build off of that footing. A quick survey of these verses tells you that this isn't going to be a typical uh, virtues and vice list. Contrary to popular belief, popular belief inside and outside of the church, biblical ethics does not consist of God wringing his hands in heaven and shouting in all caps in a book, stop it, stop it, stop it, right? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, would you quit it already down there? No, Christianity is not a religion of don'ts. 
nor are its people meant to gather around in fear and hatred and screech at all their antis at the people we disagree with. Look at verses 25 through 32. Every don't and every anti is accompanied by a do and a pro. Yes, we put away. Yes, we put off something. But then don't just sit in a silent corner about it, trying not to sin. We get to put on something. We get to go out with a positive word, a positive feeling, a positive action. To paraphrase the theologian Sinclair Ferguson, we walk the walk of love. First, our left foot put off. Then our right foot put on. Left, right, left, right. Put off, put on, put off, put on, put off, put on. Step by step, day by day. But also notice that Paul doesn't appeal to willpower or guilt or shame or fear here. Ephesians isn't just some like high school pep rally, right? It's not just some bad dog, why don't you get your act together speech. No, Paul is appealing to the gospel as our motive. This is how you step in the Christian life. Each time our verses ask us to put off some habit and to put on the opposite practice, they give us a motive that gets at what Jesus Christ has already done for us unconditionally. It's as if Paul's reminding us for reasons that we can't see to the bottom of, except that it wasn't your or my moral talent, that you have been given and I have been given a new role in Christ's play for the watching world. And you and I, we need a wardrobe change to do this play. We gotta put off our dirty clothes that stink, and we gotta put on those clean clothes that shine. But what items do verses 25 through 32 suggest for our change of clothes? What are we to do? Paul gives us a very specific list of action items. And we're gonna look at those because they're essential starters for what it means to live like Jesus personally lived and how to get along in close and intimate relationships, like, say, in a church or a family or a work environment. So let's briefly look at these instructions, starting with where Paul does in verse 25, but picking up with him in verse 29 through 30, because our second point is going to combine those ideas and how and why we speak. So look, our words is an appropriate place to start, isn't it? Why? Because to quote Samuel Johnson again, language is the dress of thought. Language is the dress of thought. That's just a clever way of saying that what we say shows others and ourselves what we can't easily see otherwise. What we say shows the thoughts of our hearts. You see, how we use our words reveals what we care about or treasure in our lives. But in our passage, verse 25, Paul wants to zero in on how to speak accurately. He's asking us to use our words to reflect or represent God and others and ourselves in this world correctly. And so Paul puts off, he asks us to put off or put away falsehood and lies and put on speaking the truth. But how do we do this? Right? Why should we do this moral two-step? Because of what Jesus has done. By his birth, 
by his life, by his death, by his resurrection and ascension. Jesus has given us, lonely individuals that we are, deep belonging that extends across time and space. And this belonging to other spiritual brothers and sisters, and most of all to Jesus, being on the inside like this solves one of the main reasons that we actually lie. Why do we lie? We lie to protect ourselves and to get invited in. And because Christians are significant spiritual members of one another, like a body, when I deceive someone else, I'm actually deceiving and defeating myself. The image here is of a right eye lying about what it saw to the same person's left eye. That is crazy making, right? To think about that. <laughs> left eye sees something, doesn't say it to the right eye what it saw, and it's a recipe for trouble, not only in a body part, but also in a person's self-interest. That makes no sense. Verses 29 and 30 take our words a step further. Not only should we tell the truth because Jesus has given us no need to lie, we're also to put off corrupting our harmful talk and to put on words that heal or build up. This often looks like the beginning with what the famous theologian Thumper in the movie Bambi says, right? We've got to start here. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, okay? But we don't want to end there. We've got to complete this thought by actually finding true and encouraging things to say to someone or about someone that actually makes that person want to be a better person. Isn't that a cool idea? We can reach and push that way. But this is so hard to do. Again, how do we more carefully use our lips? And we do this by remembering that whatever we say is heard by God the Spirit, who I can make sad and disappointed for me and for others by what I say. But the Holy Spirit, I can't make him disappointed in me because he has marked me out as his forever. And that fact is bigger than and also changes the way I talk. But sometimes, maybe especially in the church, we use the fear of being nice. We want to be so nice. We use that as a way to avoid conflict, right? That's what we do. We avoid hard conversations that way. We can be so afraid of someone else's anger or our own anger that we don't want to talk about it. And so in verses 26 and 27, point three, why and how Christians feel, uh, this can be a helpful push for us to risk disagreeing with one another. Notice verse 26 begins with a positive put on command. Be angry. If you're listening and you're still with me, that's shocking. <laughs> That's the Apostle Paul, the Bible, just told me to get good and angry. Be angry. According to a lot of different folks I read on this passage, Paul likely wrote be angry as a way to say two things. First, anger is an unavoidable and universal human emotion. All of you in this room, including me, get angry. Our emotions are real and mostly reliable. We can't deny anger. It happens. And often, anger tells us something about ourselves, that something precious to us is being threatened. But at the same time, like all emotions, anger is not always reliable. Sometimes, 
I can get overly defensive about the wrong things. And we are always responsible for what we do with our emotions like anger. Therefore, Paul adds, do not sin. This is the second reason Paul writes, be angry. You do, you can actually have righteous anger. You can have righteous anger. After all, Jesus demonstrated this during his earthly life. Jesus got righteously ticked off when people chose to make money instead of allowing more of worship to happen in his temple. He also gets really angry when people who are self-righteous refuse to let people be healed in need. But when I look at the times that I get angry, I don't know about you, that anger is rarely from sadness. It's rarely from a righteous concern for God or for other people. Most often, my anger is straight from fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that my time or my energy or my family or my reputation are threatened. And that makes me want to bow up and that makes me want to fight. And this is why Paul cautions to not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That is, the longer we stay angry, the harder it is to control our anger, to put it to bed. Instead, anger starts to control us and our heart thoughts. And I'm married, and I've done enough premarital counseling and marital counseling to know that what Paul means here gets totally twisted. <laughs> right? I mean, this whole, like, go to, don't go to bed angry. <laughs> okay? What he's actually trying to say is, let go of the dispute when you go to bed. Don't sharpen your arguments overnight. Don't fantasize about ways to win. <laughs> or fantasize about rub your hands together mentally and construct the perfect way to make someone hurt like you hurt. Conflict is a given, but good conflict is definitely not a given. And so be angry and do not sin is asking yourself, what feels threatened? What feels threatened for me? And how do I live as if I actually serve a God who is generous and does not actually be stingy with me? That he actually gives me what I need. But just like our words and our emotions indicate where our hearts are, we also have to think about how we handle work and money. And so verse 28 tells us why and how a Christian acts, point four. You see, money and work drive us because they represent so much more than themselves. They're not just about money. It's never just about money. It's never just about work. We tend to look to our money and to our jobs with a desire to save what we have for security. Or we tend to look to our money and our jobs with a desire to get more from them, to spend for significance. And we think, if I can just get that lifestyle, right? If I can just get that certain amount stored away, that nest egg, I will be, my life will be life-proof. Nothing can happen that can break my heart. I'm secured against catastrophe. And I'm an or, we think, by getting our life situated the way we want with our money and work, I'll be admired and desired finally by those people. But notice the way Paul addresses these human pressure points. He tells Christians to put off stealing, put off hoarding things to get security, put off taking from others to get significance. Instead, we're to put on labor, doing honest work with our hands, 
The motive for our work is something altogether more lovely than we've considered. It's altogether more other-centered than we often consider. We work so that we may share, we have something to share with anyone in need. We work so that we can give others the financial security that they need. We work at home or in the office so that we can share with others the social significance that they desire. How? Why? Because in Jesus Christ, God has created and he has sustained all the things that we need to live. And again, in Jesus, God has rescued us into a relationship with all of the admiration that we can possibly desire. And God typically shares the benefits of his creation and of his providence and of his salvation. He shares those benefits to others through people like us. Isn't that amazing? In the words of Martin Luther, we can become Christ to our neighbors. That's why we work. Giving those around us food and shelter and love out of our work in the name of Jesus. And this idea of becoming Christ to our neighbors is at the heart of our fifth and final point. Yes, we made it. We made it. Fifth and final point this morning. Verses 31 and 32 give us a rundown or a summary of the passage thus far and really the Christian life as a whole. Verse 31 tells us what we put away. Bitterness, a resentful spirit, right? Wrath, settled, seething hostility, and anger, the boiling over of wrath's heat. And we put away the clamor, the words that we yell or scream to hurt the others in front of us. And we put away the slander, the words that we whisper or we slip in to hurt the others behind our backs. Words fueled by malice and ill will that takes pleasure in injuring people. But the Christian life is not just a bunch of don'ts or antis, right? It's also so full of do's and pros. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And this forgiving what we say and what we do when we're often the ones being hurt, these loving words and these loving actions come from a heart filled with, fueled by the Holy Spirit and the compassion and the kindness, yes, the kindness that he gives us too. And that's really the point. We're right back at Samuel Johnson's summary of the Christian life to promote kindness. To be kind, we must also give up our rights. I have to give up my bitterness, my wrath, my malice, because those feed off of my demand to be in the right. Kindness does what is right without needing to prove that I'm in the right. Do you get that? Kindness does what is right without needing to prove that I'm in the right. And this often looks like JADE, it's an acronym, not justifying, not arguing, not defending, and not over-explaining. But how do we choose kindness in the heat of the hurt? Great, Sid, this did end up feeling like a virtues, advice, do's and don'ts list. How do, we, how do we do that? According to verse 32, you look to the cross and you remember how God and Christ forgave you. And that can be so easy for a preacher to get up here and say, 
It's as hard for a preacher like me and people like you to believe. And I think this is because I struggle, we struggle to believe that our failures are actually forgiven in Christ. Whether these failures are small but constant, like the decades-long struggle of Samuel Johnson just to get up and pray, or big and life-altering, like the thing that you did that interrupts your sleep and, and any lull in your waking life that you feel so much shame and guilt and fear over. It reminds me of this memoir that I recently read. It's about a young World War II veteran, just right out of World War II, named Jewel. And Jewel Spock falls wildly in love with a woman named Nancy. The, problem, the only problem is that he realizes just how much he loves her the minute she goes and leaves for the mission field in Mexico. <laughs> so Jewel is resolved, though, right? He thinks, I got to get up my courage. And so he makes a long-distance call to Mexico every single day until he somehow reaches Nancy in the area of Toluca. And finally, after several days of trying this, he, he does reach her, and he gets connected to Nancy, and he shouts into the receiver, let's get married as soon as you get home. Let's get married now. But when Nancy tries to respond, there's too much static to hear her response. And so Jewel suggests she telegrams him with her answer. And you can imagine how this goes. Jewel has to wait days and days for Nancy's telegrammed response to his plea for marriage. Isn't that what confessing our sins to God in Christ can feel like sometimes? Doesn't it? Pitching the most vulnerable parts of ourselves long distance, feels like, to God, and then just hearing static on the other end. Or having to wait days and days and days for a response, it feels like. But that familiar feeling is what's so beautiful about Nancy's response. In fact, when I first read it, I started crying. It's so amazing. You see, after three days of waiting and starting to feel like so afraid and a little bit sad, Jewel finally receives Nancy's telegram, and it comes with an answer on the fourth day. And do you know what it said? Jewel had asked, can we get married as soon as you get home now? And Nancy had a 23 words, pre-Twitter, 23 words of her telegram to write this. And this is what she said in all 23 words. Yes, 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 yes. And I love you, Nancy. That is 19 yeses. And I love you. Do you realize that God has written you and me a response to our question? Will you forgive me again? Will you forgive me for the first time? And what does God reply? It might be familiar but it's no less dramatic. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not a yes and no. But in him, it's always yes. For all the promises of God, will he, will he forgive me? Will he make me kind and tender-hearted? All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Would you pray with me again?
Father, you're that good. 19 yeses in a row because you know what it feels like to wait four days in the dark. You waited three in a tomb. And I pray that you would teach our hearts to wait, teach our hearts to trust your goodness, teach our hearts to want to do these things that Paul has asked us to do by your spirit that you've asked us to do. And I pray that they wouldn't be a laundry list or a honeydew list, but they would be our response to 19 yeses and an I love you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.